Welcome to the world of culture pop with Steve Mason and Sue Kalinsky. Culture, comedy, movies, TV, tech, authors, trends, pop, pop. This is the Culture Pop Podcast. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Culture Pop Podcast. I'm Steve Mason along with Sue Kalinsky. We like to call this take two. Sue, you look refreshed. You look like you've had a vacation. Um, do I look tan? You do look a little tan, <laughs> although you don't strike me as a person who tans, do you? I tan because I run and I play golf. Um, so usually my face isn't that tan. It's usually my arms and my legs. So but, in my um, family, we tan. Like uh, my Aunt Linda still has a lawn chair in the back and she lays out. That was a big thing when we were growing up in my family. Go out, go lay out and just get the sun. Little did we know there would be all these downsides to it later on in life. Oh, like ridiculous. Like when I was growing up, we used to go to Jones Beach all the time. Right? Yes. And then we belonged to a beach club. So you would see just like if there was an aerial view, you would <laughs> see just rows and rows, mostly women. Yes. With the with the with the sun reflector. Yes. Right. And they would take iodine and um and oil like um really like like baby oil, mix it together. Yep. And 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 slather that all over their body Ugh. and and put the reflector out. It was put the reflector out. Yeah, so it would reflect the sun, so it would be stronger. Oh wow! And it kind of was somewhat of a badge of honor, like like you know we like being New Yorkers for any kind of um, spring break or Christmas vacation. Everybody would go to Florida. Yeah, and then you'd come back and you'd do that comparison with your arm. You know, you put your arm out Look to somebody else. How dark else. I am! Yeah, am I darker? Am I darker than you? <laughs> you know, it was, and and it really meant something. You know, and I guess you just felt like you know you were you were rich. You yes, know, because because yes. you were tan. You that know, was to, always a sign of having money. To my aunt Linda um, in Altoona, Pennsylvania, she still has a tanning bed in her basement. She has her own. She has her own tanning bed that is crazy and she's always dark i'll give her that she's always she's always tan <laughs> dead a winner there she is altoona pennsylvania the only tan woman well then they have those they, they came out with those spray tans i got a spray tan when i got married i was wearing a sleeveless dress and my my tan lines weren't even so i got a spray tan and it's very risky because if they don't do it right you you look orange. Yes, yes. And did you look okay? I yeah, looked, I looked at okay. the wedding pictures. Yeah, no, I looked okay. So uh, so anyway, you go. Uh, you you went tanning somewhere. Where did you go? <laughs> I went to a place called Stewart, Florida, which is near Jensen Beach. Actually, not too far from Port St. Lucie. Okay, it's around like forty miles north of West Palm Beach. Hey, the Mets. That's where the Mets train. That's where the Mets train. And and the funniest thing, so we had to um, we had a, a layover in New York, and it was a, you know like a total total drag. We booked the trip; it was round trip, and then we got a I got a text like two months later saying they rerouted the trip, uh. so we had to stop in New York. So um, met this really cool woman sitting next to me on the plane on the way from L.A. to New York, and then from New York to West Palm. Tom and I are hanging out at the gate, and there was a family of four. Um, right across from us. And there were two young boys, probably in middle school. 
And uh, we just struck up a conversation. Obviously, they were from New York. Yes. Um, you could just tell by their accent and their attitude. And so we said, oh, yeah, we're originally from New York, blah, blah, blah. And I looked at one of the boys and I said, are you a Mets fan or a Yankees fan? And uh, he's like, oh, Mets fan all the way. And we're talking, I'm talking sports with him. So I said, do you ever read Metsmerized um, online? Oh, this and- is your uh, blog, right? Well, I, I contribute. Contribute. It's a, it's it's a it's a it's a it's a Mets. You know, basically, it's a it's a Mets site. Yes. And um, a lot of really cool people, you know, contribute. So I said, oh, you know, I write for that. And he looks at me and he said, you do. And I said, yeah. So I, t- I tell him my name, and he immediately looks me up online <laughs> and see when my name popped up, all my articles came up. Ah. And he looked at me. He was like. That's you? I said, yeah. <laughs> so I, I, t- I must have talked to this kid for like 20 minutes. And then we start walking towards the, um, the jetway. And his mother turns and looks at me and says, I can't believe he's having a conversation. He never talks to anybody. Really? Yeah. So it was really fun. And I, and I, I really wanted to give him my email, you know, yeah, just to sure. have like a little like pen pal, you know, relationship with him. But, you know, we were sitting in different areas of the of the plane and I could kind of see him, but he was too far away and I didn't know his name. You have a fan. I was just it was just so cute. Yeah, it was great. It, you know, really- just a just a little tip. If you sit next to me in a plane, if you happen to be listening to this and uh, you know who I am and you happen to draw this seat next to mine, I don't want to talk to you. I don't want to talk to anybody on a plane. I put my earbuds in. Uh, I don't, I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll be friendly, right? Hi, well, you know, blah, blah, blah. But I don't want to know where you're going. I don't want to know why you're going there. I just, I just want my own space. So here you are, you're conversational on a plane. Well, I mean, it was in the gate, first of all. Oh, okay. But it's funny that you say that because I am very much like you. Um, I never want anybody to ask me what I do for a living. Yes. Um, there are times where I've lied because I, you know, there because you tell them you're in show business and then they just have like, oh, you know, God, then it's nine million over. questions. And do you know that person? Is that person gay? <laughs> they always ask like weird, weird, <laughs> weird that questions. person gay. <laughs> I, I've been asked that. I mean, just crazy, <laughs> stupid questions. So there's a woman. I'm in the aisles. There's a woman in the middle seat and she's talking on her phone. And it's driving me crazy. And then I look and I'm like, we're already up in the air. How is she talking on her phone? She was on FaceTime with somebody. Really? While you were in the air? Yeah. So I just said something to her when she got off the phone, just out of curiosity. I was like, how are you able to do FaceTime? So she's telling me that, you know, you can do it. It's weird. She said, I had no idea. You know, the person I was talking to told me that she could do it. And then we strike up a conversation. It turns out. She has this company. It's like women-oriented empowerment kind of stuff, but she sells um, uh, electrolyte, um, a, an electrolyte drink for okay. runner for runners and oh, nice. exercise. So I was like, "Oh my god!" I said, "I, you know, I'm a runner," and she said, "Well, this product is great because it has much less sugar in it than the normal, you know, fare." Yep. So she said, "If you give me your address," she said, "I'll just send you a whole carton of stuff." Get out of here. Yeah, so she's going to send me a whole carton of stuff. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, that's and awesome. then I so I it said, sounds like you're a real con. And so you talk to Mets guy and you talk <laughs> to electrolyte lady. It sounds <laughs> it sounds like you're like the the social butterfly of the airport. 
I know it's funny because Tom, you know, we sit aisle to aisle because, you know, when it's three seats, we don't, no one wants to sit yeah, in the middle. Yeah, you both want an aisle, yeah. So every now and then he'd kind of like look over, you know, like, I, I must have been talking to this woman for like two hours. Oh, well, you said you're kind of like me. You're nothing like me. Well, just because we struck up a conversation and she, I went from like, I can't stand this woman from for talking on her phone to like, she's my new best friend. So, um, yeah, so, you know, I got all her information. She got my information. We already touched base with each other. Um, but she's, she was actually very, very cool. So, so you go to, you went to Florida, right? Went to Florida, stayed with uh, Tom's mom, who is very, very See, funny. I'm not big on staying with family. Staying with family is hard for me. Oh, well, you know, I, I, I get what you're saying. But when we go there, well, sometimes we stay at his, um, his sister and brother-in-law. They own a motel. Oh, that's cool. So we'll stay at the motel. But um, we hadn't seen his mom in a really long time. She just moved into a new apartment. How old is she? uh, She's 88. Yeah. Is she like one of those ladies that'll say anything just because she's 88 and she's allowed to? No. She, well, she, she actually is very, very funny. Um, okay, good. Her hear, her hearing is going a little bit. So <laughs> there's a lot of like Emily Latilla kind of yeah, stuff going yeah, on. You right. know, she's always saying sometimes she'll say the wrong thing. Like, and I was like, no, I didn't say that. You know, but the funniest thing is his um, two other aunts and one of his uncles came over for lunch, and every time one of their phones rang, the volume on the ringer was so loud. It was like a fire alarm went off every time someone called them. And, you know, I'm like laughing to myself, but, um, but, but they're the kind of people that I could have said that to them. Like, yes. where's the fire? You know, because they're all really, really funny. Oh, that's so, cool. That's cool. And, and, and his family, you know, there's five kids in my family, five kids in Tom's family. And, um, I, they're, they're like the Gentile version of my family, you know? Oh, nice. Yeah. So you're all funny, all funny, all Mets fans. Um, no, nah, my, I mean, my brothers really aren't Mets fans. No. My sister is a San Francisco giant fan. Oh, she what's wrong with her there. of all the people? I know I of know. all the people of the all the, teams the enemy in all the world. Yeah. Uh, well, I'm glad you had a good time. And how was your week? Uh, it was, uh, you know, I'm working away, you know, we're doing uh, the old Mason in Ireland show and, uh, I had a bad, actually, no, I had a really bad week. I got super stoned on a couple of nights <laughs> and, uh, ate so much bad stuff for me. It was like record break. It was last Tuesday and Wednesday. And I was having a perfectly good week, really disciplined. You know, I was riding the bike. I was eating healthy. All of a sudden Tuesday rolls around. I'm like, yeah, screw it. And I got just rip roaring stoned, uh, and uh, and ate badly. And then, of course, two days later, by Thursday, I'm like, okay, I'm serious about this again. I'm I'm back on the back on the rails, as we like to say around here. But I had two really really lost. It was like a lost weekend. It was like a lost lost weekdays. Um, but I, I I figured it out. I figured it out. I'm back to normal. Okay, Won't get well. rip roaring stoned. Well, when you get rip roaring stone, you're always going to gravitate to eating bad. Right? Oh God, it's so bad. I so ate bad. really bad in Florida because you know you're on vacation. You know, it's cake and ice cream. Oh yeah, yeah, no vacation. And- yeah, I was working. I was just a weekday. <laughs> <laughs> I was out of control, and now the holidays are coming up. And look out during yeah. the holidays. I spent yeah. a lot of time rip roaring stone. All right, uh, our guest today. 
is well above this conversation, much classier <laughs> than this conversation. He's got a legendary 45-year career in Hollywood, including films like The Hand That Rocks the Cradle, The Basketball Diaries, Congo, Miss Congeniality, and on and on. On television, he was Warden Leo Glynn on HBO's prison drama Oz, and he is currently playing L.C. Duncan on the hit BET series The Family Business. But after all these years, he is still best known as one of the four original Ghostbusters in the legendary 1984 film. And he has returned as Winston Zeddemore in the brand new Ghostbusters Afterlife. Ernie Hudson is here. Hey, Ernie, thank you so much for doing this, man. We really appreciate it. Well, thank you guys for inviting me. I'm uh, very happy to be here. So I definitely want to talk about Ghostbusters Afterlife, which we both saw uh, over the weekend. But I'd love to go back to the original film. and. You know, obviously, Bill Murray, Dan Aykroyd, Harold Ramis, they were friends before the original movie. They came from comedy. You came on board. How did you wind up becoming a Ghostbuster? Well, you know, it's, it's interesting. I did a, uh, a movie uh, called Space Hunter that Ivan Reitman produced uh, the year before with Peter Strauss and Molly Ringwald. And the character I played was sort of a bigger than life. Um, Washington sort of drove a big rig and I, I used a lower register in my voice. Um, and I think Ivan saw me as that character. So when Ghostbusters came up, um, he didn't think I was right for it and they refused to see me. So they had auditioned probably about three months before hmm. I finally got an audition. And um, so my job was to go in and convince them that uh, I could be this guy who's part of a team as opposed to this sort of boisterous character that I had played. So, um, but it took about four or five auditions. (laughs) Really? Wow. (laughs) Yeah, it went through, uh, it was a long process to the point to, by the time I got the role, I didn't feel like celebrating. You know what I mean? When it's yeah. like, okay, I mean, is it going to happen? He said, well, you know, we, we want to see somebody and we want to, we're thinking about it. And, um, yeah, so it was, uh, it, did you it do chemistry auditions with those guys? Well, Harold Ramis was always in the room and, uh, and I knew, uh, after the first audition, I had him on board. We, uh, just, you know, it, it just connected. Um, but I hadn't met Bill Murray or Dan Aykroyd. Uh, until we, uh, till I got on board and we went to New York to start rehearsing. Um, you know, so, I, and I think it, to me, Winston was a guy who sort of was, if there was ever a teamwork, you know, he was part of the team. He wasn't this, you know, he wasn't trying to be out front. It was interesting working with them because they came from that improvisational and I've done improv. I've done a little bit of everything. I've been acting a good 10 years before Ghostbusters came along, um, mostly in theater, um, some film and TV. But um, so so it was, to me, it was very just important to kind of get a, to be a part of this this group, this team. Um, and I knew they didn't know me. So sort of stepping into it was a little bit, um, uh, you know, awkward. I think at first with Bill Murray was the first one, I think, to really sort of opened up and and uh and everybody it was it was really cool the guys we connected right away um but i always felt like they were family and i was like the friend down the street (laughs) who kind of came to visit and uh and even though they were always welcoming the studio um 
it seemed to me we're making a, uh, an effort to make sure that I was sort of outside of that. You know what I mean? It was like, uh, and I, I felt, uh, I never got that from the guys, but uh, I always felt the studio was, you know, right up until the movie opened, there was always a little bit of, let's make sure we keep Winston as not a boy, because we want to sell these guys as the Ghostbusters and Winston, you know, he's, um, and, and I think they were surprised to see the, uh, the fans really respond to Winston. And I think it was that response that forces studios to take a, another look and realize that, yeah, he's, he's part of the team. Well, that's how cool is that, you know, going from somebody who had to fight so hard to get the part and then being such a beloved character, you know, not only yeah. did you hit it out of the park, but, you know, you, you really, you know, you, you know, everybody just embraced you. Yeah, yeah, that was uh, actually very, very cool. In fact, I, I will say it was the fans who made me sort of revisit Ghostbusters and take a, because I've done movies, um, but, you know, you do the movie and then you move on. But the fact that the fans were so uh, loving and embracing that I went, oh, well, let me just take another look at what we did. And I started to appreciate the movie, I think, more because of um, their response. So what did you think of it on the page? You get this script uh, co-written by Harold Ramis and, and Bill Murray. What, did, was it funny immediately to you? Was it wild? What was your reaction? You know, I read that script. I was a single dad uh, and I was living with my, uh, my two sons and, um, and things were um, challenging, keeping the phone on and the rent paid and all that and still trying to be true to, uh, you know. So when I got the script, it was the funniest script. It was it was the funniest, the best character. I felt like this, if I get this role, it's going to change my world. And so I was determined to uh, to make that happen. Um, that character that I read for was changed um, by the time we started shooting, which was, you know, disappointing. Now, I will say... <laughs> People say, well, Bill Murray, Dan Aykroyd, Harold Ramis, Ivan Reitman, they were like family. They've been together for a long time. But also, they got together, wrote the script. They were a team. And so I was sort of an outsider. So now, as an older person, I can appreciate that. But at the time, being an actor, it was, it was very, very challenging. But I thought it was the funniest script. And, and I, I made concessions. Uh, because I just felt this role was the most, it was going to really be life-changing. And so when they cut the part back, and Ivan Reitman and I, we've had conversations about this, and he <laughs> he sees it very differently than I remember. But uh, it was really, it was really a hard thing for me to, because, uh, you know, it was, yeah, it was, wasn't what I, that funny part. And I also realized that um, I think it was written probably with Eddie Murphy uh, in mind. And Eddie was already well-established, had worked with Danny Aykroyd. And so they wrote it, I think, feeling like there was going to be someone, you know, of equal status in, term, in the industry. And so when they brought this unknown guy in, um, it's like, why did we give him, you know, I mean, I was the one who got slimed in the hallway. My character yep. was one who <laughs> thought of the marshmallow man. Um, and so all that was gone and, uh, and yeah, it was, 
like I said, it took me a while to really kind of go back and say, you know what? The movie is a perfect little movie the way it is. And whatever choices or decisions were made, I can appreciate and respect that now. Um, but, you know, 30 plus years ago, it was, uh, <laughs> it was a challenge. So working with um, trained improv actors who actually knew one another, um, right. did it, was it intimidating or did, did you feel like you were given the freedom to just kind of go along with that improv ride? And, and how much of it was improvised? Well, you know, we, we had a script and we would do the scripted version of a scene first and then it would kind of open up to, you know, what, um, you know, the, the input. Um, I can't say I always felt that my input was valued as much, <laughs> as much as theirs, but I will also say for Bill and Danny and Harold, they, uh, some of my lines, which now fans repeat 30 plus years later, uh, were them saying, let's make sure we include Ernie. So they, you know, would, uh, I love this town wasn't there, you know, so a lot of it was improv, but you know, I started out, um, my ego was pretty healthy. You know? So I never really felt, and I still don't feel that uh, intimidated in that way by anybody. Um, I feel I bring something to the table. And um, so it wasn't about, and I've done improv, so it wasn't about not feeling I could, that, you know, it was more about how do I, you know, get the studio and everyone to realize that I can bring something to the table as opposed to, um, you know, um, I'm just someone, I'm just part of the props. Right. You know? Right. And so that was, that was for me a challenge. And like I said, now I'm telling this story this way. Ivan Reitman, he and I, we've had long discussions and he says, no, he didn't remember it quite that way, but uh, that's how I remember it. So when this movie came out, you're, you're from Michigan originally. I was at Bowling Green State University, so I'm, I'm from Toledo, Ohio. Um, right. The movie was huge. It was all anybody could talk. It was a phenomenon. What, what's it like to be in a movie that becomes such a gigantic seminal hit? Well, you know, it was kind of, um, what do I say? It was sort of a mixed blessing hmm. because when... Uh, I had been working as an actor, like I said, for a long time before Ghostbusters. And I've always believed, and I think a lot of actors, we believe that if you're in a major hit, a movie that opens number one at the box office, your career is going to jump. It's going to change. And Ghostbusters came out. It was, it was huge. Um, but it's my career shut down. Really? And I, yeah, mm -hmm. I couldn't, I mean, Columbia who, uh, you know, uh, produced Ghostbusters. It came out, it's Columbia Studios. I couldn't even get an audition at Columbia. Really? <laughs> so it was the weirdest thing. Literally, uh, I found myself scrambling. And in some ways now, it probably might've been a good thing because it forced me to do commercials, which I had never done, voiceovers, which I had never done, TV stuff that I wouldn't have considered because I thought my movie career was going to jump off. So for three and a half years, um, it was, it was nothing wow. happening, you know? Wow. And then I went in and I was determined. I got a, um, a television series that Stephen Camel was uh, uh, doing. I think, it was, yeah, no, it was um, uh, a show called Cop Rock. Uh, Cop Rock? You were in Cop Rock? Rock. I, I got the part in Stephen Bochco. Stephen yeah. Bochco, there you go. So uh, I got the part in uh, Cop Rock, but I wanted to, to get in film. 
And I went in for an audition. Just, just in case people don't know, Cop Rock was a, uh, a cop show, but it was a musical. And yeah. a friend of mine was actually a producer on that show and directed the final episode of Cop Rock, a guy oh, by wow. the name of Mike Robin. But it was to to go back and look at it now. It was it was really innovative. It didn't necessarily yeah. work, but it was really innovative. It was very innovative. I remember uh, going in uh, and meeting Randy Newman, who was uh, doing the, mu- the music. And, uh, and I thought, well, I'm going to ch- get a chance to work with him. I'm going to get a chance to sing. It was really a lot of fun. But I really wanted film. And I went in and uh, a movie called Weeds with Nick Nolte. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, I went into the audition and I had to sing in the audition. Um, so I just made up a song on the spot. But uh, I got the role. So then it was me having to go to Bochco and say, you know what? I really kind of want to do this movie and will you let me out of it? And ah. uh, so that, um, so they did. And, uh, but, uh, but uh, so weeds came up, I did weeds and then I did, I don't know. I, I think about eight, I did a number of movies back to back to back. Didn't, I mean, literally going from one set to the other and then Ghostbusters two came out. And the same thing happened. <laughs> wow. With Ghostbusters. It put a too. chill on things, huh? Everything. Yeah. And I don't know if it was because the studios felt that maybe I, I, I don't know. I, I can't even explain or under, I don't understand what happened. I just know that uh, until uh, the hand of rocks, the cradle came along. Uh, nothing was, nothing was happening. Wow. So, Wow. Now, I know a lot of times when you're up, when you go in an audition and you don't get something, um, you ask your agent, you know, well, you know, did they get, did right. get feedback? Like, why? And, and a lot of times you don't, you don't get it. They're right. like, nah, you know, I don't know. We're going in a different direction to give you the proverbial, you know. Yeah, right. Yeah. I always say for an actor, you never really know why you're working. When you're working, you think it's all because you're so brilliant, but there's a lot of things at play. So you never know why you're working, but you also never know really why you're not working. You didn't get the part, but nobody ever tells you the truth because if they just say you suck, then they might have something later on and they need you. And so nobody ever really tells you why things aren't happening. Well, you know, it's funny because I, you know, I started out as a stand up and I've, you know, I've been in a few things acting wise. And it was always it was always the roles that I left thinking I'm totally not getting this that I got. Exactly. Always. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, um, I, I I'm trying to think of this. I remember going in. I really wanted this part. I just really wanted to get to, I needed it. And um, and I just screwed up the audition and I went to my car and literally was in tears because I knew I, you know, I got home and I got the part, you know, so. Right. You, right. You know, it's hard to, yeah. It's a, a weird process. Uh, so Ghostbusters Afterlife, what, what made this the right time to get the band back together? I'm sure there've been other scripts and other ideas and other pitches. What made this the right one to get you guys all back together again? Yeah. You know, I'm not sure why, it never happened. The fans certainly wanted uh, it to happen over the past 30 years. Literally, uh, certainly every week, someone is asked, when is the new movie? Uh, the studios would announce they're doing a movie, and then they'd announce that I'm a part of it, which they never asked me. But um, but it can never happen, and I've heard reasons why. But um, I think it took um, Jason Reitman, really. Mm-hmm. Um, 
who was six years old on the set when we did the first one. He was in the second movie. I had a small part in the beginning. Um, but his dad did the, you know, Ivan was a producer on all the movies. And uh, I think he loved the franchise enough to, uh, to bring a certain um, responsibility and, um, and a, a, a commitment to the fans and a commitment to Ghostbusters. Um, a little different than Paul Feig. And I love Paul Feig. I'm a fan. And uh, the movie that he did with the ladies. Yes. Uh, I'm a fan of each and every one of them. They're the funniest people. But I think they were put into an awkward position of, first off, it was a remake. And then they had to do some version of us, which was, I think, very limiting. So, uh, but Jason, uh, you, you know, I, I love Jason. I was always very proud of him because I knew him and I felt kind of like he was family. He certainly was doing very well as a director. And so when he called, um, yeah, it wasn't even a, a question. And I think the other guys felt the same way. I never really talked to him about it, but I think it took him to, uh, to, you know, come to the table and say, you know, I want, I'm going to do this. Uh, and I trusted him totally. So. I, I, I love the movie. I mean, I, it was, I, it, to me, you know, it, it really kept the um, the film kept the integrity of the franchise, you know, yeah, in space. Yeah. I mean, right. it it was the writing was so witty and 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 smart. Um, right. The casting was 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 just perfect. You know, the chemistry with everybody was yeah. perfect. Um, and you know what a what a love letter to Harold Ramis. I yeah. mean, it was yeah. just yeah. you know you know when I watched you guys at the end of the film when his spirit appears. Right. I was thinking to myself, like, as as a character, of course, you're you're sad because you're seeing your buddy, you know, who right, right. spent all this time with. But as an actor, standing there with Dan Aykroyd and Bill Murray, what yeah. what did that feel like? You know, first off, I was sort of in denial. I mean, I got a call from Jason with doing the movie. Well, I had heard that for thirty years, and I'm like, oh yeah, maybe. It wasn't until I really was pretty much on the set that I thought, wow, this is really happening. <laughs> so I think Sigourney was the first person I saw when I, I got there and, uh, and seeing Bill Murray and Danny, we're all in our, our jumpsuits and, um, and realizing how much this movie has impacted my life over the past nearly 40 years. It was very, um, it was very moving. It was kind of a spiritual, like here we are, you know, it's, kind of like it was bridged together in a very very strange way so um yeah it was it was great and i love the new cast i met all the you know paul and you know just the new cast was amazing yeah uh like those that, kids totally how good were those kids huh? the kids were truly truly amazing um and i know a couple of them um um going blank on the name uh, uh podcast i think oh. it was probably the first thing he did but so incredible yeah um, they were all just in, in just all, I think they, they had a love for the franchise. I call it a friend, Bill Murray teased me about calling it a franchise, but you know, uh, but I think they loved the movie and was so happy to, uh, be a part of it. And, uh, that made a difference. So you were, if, uh, Wikipedia is to be believed, uh, you were a resident playwright at one of the oldest black theater companies in America. Uh, when did you realize your career would be more as an actor and less as a playwright? 
Well, I started, um, yeah, I, I started working with um, Ron Milner at Concept East Theater. This was back in the, around 65, 66. Um, and um, I, I, I saw myself as a writer. Now, when you're doing community theater, somebody doesn't show up, so you have to sort of step in the role. You have to do lights. You have to do whatever needs to be done. The show must go on. And um, and I think I saw myself um, writing up until uh, I got a scholarship to go to Yale. Uh, I was uh, accepted in that playwriting uh, uh, group, and um, that probably wasn't the smartest move. But um, it wasn't until my marriage. I got married at... Uh, 18. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Not sure why, but I did. And, <laughs> um, and that marriage fell apart right about the time I was at uh, Yale. And um, I, uh, and the kid, she was working on a PhD, which she eventually got, but she didn't want the responsibility of the kids at that time. And so I had to step up. Uh, I didn't have a dad growing up and there was no way I was going to let my kids, uh, you know, turn them over to somebody else. And so um, when I got to Hollywood, I found writing, it's a strange thing because you you write something, you go into a meeting, they'll discuss it, they want you to make changes, we'll talk about it, and then a year later, maybe something might happen. Acting was immediate. Uh, back in those days, especially, if I went in and they say, we want you, even if they change their minds, I get paid. <laughs> and as a single dad, uh, not really knowing anybody uh, in the business. Um, I'm out there with my kids with this one room apartment. I needed to get, I need to get paid now. So the acting was, and also I realized too, that um, acting was always fun. Acting was what I didn't have to think about. Acting was like, it was like being a kid and I could play. The writing was, it was work, you know, it was getting up at three in the morning. It was turning stuff out. It was, Whereas acting was like, this is, I can go in and, and yeah. And so, and I put the writing off. I thought when I get older, I'll sit down and I'll, but it's hard to get the discipline back. And honestly, just the desire to do it is not there, but uh, it took me a while to accept the fact that I'm, I don't know if I thought acting was on a lower scale or something, (laughs) but it took me a while as an actress named Rosalind Cash. Um, who was a wonderful, wonderful actress. And uh, we were talking once and she said, well, you're an actor. Why, why are you embarrassed to say you're an actor? And somehow I, I just, I don't know, it, it, it forced me to say, yeah, this, this is what I do and this is what I love to do. And um, yeah, so, so somewhere in the middle of that. But I think having the responsibility of uh, raising my kids, uh, that changed things. Uh, it was, it was, you know, it was very hard at that time. It was like I said, I didn't grow up having a dad, uh, but it was very hard to say to my kids, this is America and, you know, anything is possible. And then turn around and say, I, I want to be an actor. I want to be a writer and I can't do it. Hmm. So it was important for me to demonstrate what I was talking about. Um, you know, do you really believe it or not? And, uh, so anyway, I'm kind of, I know I'm well, going there a with point, my answers. Was there a point, I mean, obviously 40, you know, 45 plus years now as an actor, was there a point at which you said, oh, I, I made it. I, I'm a working actor. Yeah, I think I've always 
felt that I've always been a working actor. It's not been, if you go back to 67, um, there's never been a period when I didn't work. I've never had to work a job being a waiter or I've always made a living as an actor. Not always the best living, but that's, <laughs> this is what I do. So, uh, and I've always felt that, um, yeah, I'm a working actor. Now to reach that point in Hollywood where you say I'm a star. Yeah. That's, you know, that's elusive. That's kind of, uh, you keep chasing it. And it wasn't probably maybe until the past 10 years that you say, you know, I need to let that go. And I need to just do the work for the work. And, uh, but you, you know, so that was a little, but being a working actor, I always tell people, you know, when you, you say that prayer and you ask for something, be real specific. So when I prayed to just, if you just let me do this work, uh, I should have asked for money. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> I've been, you know, I, 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 but I've always, I've always, you know, uh, I've always worked. So um, there, there was never a period that I didn't, I wasn't doing something. Yeah, I mean, I, I have so many friends who, you know, started it as stand-ups and then, you know, had acting careers and then, you know, they're not doing anything and they're like, oh, God, you know, what do I do? Do I do I just like cash in my chips right now and, and try <laughs> to do something else? Do I become a real estate agent? Like, what do I do? And it always yeah. seems that when they venture into something outside of show business, then they get something really wonderful. Yeah, I think it's important to to let go. Now, I uh, I, I was like I said, I was acting. I had my kids, but I tried stand up, and uh, you know, you gotta you gotta be out there, you know. And we would go any night. We'd go to maybe four theaters trying to get that little five minutes on to build your your material. But I had already was established as an actor. I'd already done Ghostbusters, and I didn't need it that much. I think you got to want something, you, you know, there's got to be a reason to stick around. And, uh, and being a single dad, the clubs were taking me away from home. Mm. So I just thought, okay, well, I won't be, I'm not going to be doing this. So, uh, but I think when you can let go and I think acting for me, because I never was never really that important or desperate, like writing, um, it was always easy to just love it for what it is. Yeah. What did so, you, uh, what, I, I just want to ask one question because you said you did stand up. Um, what, what, what did you talk about? Do you remember? Well, I think it was kind of around being a single dad, you know, my kids, you know, sort of something of the Cosby ish, um, you know, take, um, uh, you know, you know, I, I don't know. I, I saw a, a lady about a year ago. She said, I saw you do your stand up. You were awful. <laughs> so, uh, uh, yeah so i don't know i, I wow it I stuck with her too <laughs> that's right <laughs> and my wife was saying she said, you know it's the comedy where they're creating these sitcoms and you should stick with it um it wasn't my wife then but we, we we you know we're still together but um i didn't really see that and of course a lot of guys um they their sitcoms were sort of created out of their comedy yeah so when hbo started doing scripted series um high-end projects the first one before the sopranos was yeah. oz and you played uh the warden you, you know I, i'm wondering it was really audacious at at the time i mean it was what happened in that prison was brutal you know what i mean did you feel <laughs> yeah. like there that there was a show there oh yeah yeah tom fontana uh was the uh uh chief writer or uh 
I don't know what the, he was, you know, anyway, the showrunner, uh, yeah. the showrunner, he was, uh, for St. Elsewhere, uh, that Denzel was on a great cast. Uh, great show. Uh, I love you know, St. Elsewhere. Yeah. And I got cast, uh, to do, uh, an arc. I think we did maybe eight episodes one season and, um, and I, and Tom and I, we would talk a lot. And then when he was doing Oz, he called me and he said, Ernie, you know, we talked about, uh, working together, um, I didn't remember talking about working together, but I was happy he called. He said, I'm doing this thing called Oz. And, um, you know, would you like to, you know, come aboard? And uh, and I love, you know, I, I I thought it was groundbreaking. It got to a point where I couldn't, because it would come on like at 10 o'clock at night and I couldn't watch the show and go to bed. I mean, I yeah, honestly, yeah. when you're acting in it, you're not seeing all that. But when it's put together, you know, it's like, uh, no, I, 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 I'm not maybe having kids. I'm not one of those. I don't like that kind of, but I thought the show was amazing and it was a great group of actors and uh, Tom. Now, didn't you I get did. to play a scene with your son or scenes yeah, with your son? I, yeah. You know, I have four sons. Uh, none of them uh, really sort of <laughs> followed my path, but except my oldest son, um, he did some acting and some producing and he still kind of dabbles in it a little bit now, even though he's in corporate. But um, he did a season of Oz and uh, it was great to, um, you know, to work with him. I remember we we um, we did a scene together and uh, and I forgot a line. I went up on the line and he was just shocked. <laughs> <laughs> he, he just could not believe that I would not, uh, you know, and it was just, you know, I'm like, you know, because, you know, acting, we'll just do another take. It's not a big deal. But he just was so, uh, just could not believe that. Uh, uh, the dad but, would but drop a line. Would drop a line. But, you know, Oz is one of those shows. I'm like, uh, you know, you come on Oz, I don't know what Tom's going to write because none of us knew. You know, we get the script and, you know, you find, you know, you're being raped or... <laughs> whatever you know <laughs> and so i i'm like so you can do the show but I, I you know so he uh ended up i think at the end of the season he was uh killed in the ring because he had a boxing match and of course the guy who uh, killed him in the ring beat him up in the ring and he died uh was someone who could never do that in real life so it was like you know nobody's gonna believe here i'm like dude this is television. So, yeah. you know, it's, uh, but yeah, it was fun working with him and uh, we had done a couple other things together. Um, but um, I was very happy to, uh, to work with him on Oz. And, you know, in fact, I went, just got back a few weeks ago doing a city on a hill, which Tom Fontana and uh, Barry Levison um, is one of their shows. So to go back and see the old crew and, um, you know, to work with Tom again, I just have so much love and respect for him. So that was a lot of fun. Kevin Bacon and, um, uh, one play, uh, Eldis Hodge mm -hmm. starring in it, but, um, uh, it, it's a great show. And yeah, it's a great show. Oh, it was, it was so amazing. good. It was yeah, so good. Tom's and it was amazing. such a Tom Fontana show. I mean, yeah, right. it really had shades of, of, of his past work for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And Edie Falco, you know, she, did it and her career just uh, you know it's amazing how careers go you know you just never know you know who's going to be where and what but sopranos was amazing and yeah and the wire a lot of the guys went on to do some great stuff so you're playing lc duncan now on the bet series the family business which is a little bit 
got a, got a kind of a godfather vibe, leader of the <laughs> family, little succession vibe, who's going to take over the empire, all that stuff. Um, you generally play authority figures, but but nice guys. You generally play right. nice guys. Here yeah. you get to play a, a complex kind of kind of villain. What's that like for you? Yeah, I think it's uh, as an actor, you know, you um I've never had a career where uh, someone tailor-made something for me. You know what I mean? I've always felt like the guy who can't afford to get a tailor-made suit, so you got to get the thing off the rack and make it fit your body as opposed to, you know, it was made for you. So um, I felt to be able to survive in the industry, you've got to do, if it's comedy, you got to make somebody laugh. If it's drama, you got to make somebody cry. You got to do what it what it uh, calls for. And this role was a little bit of, I love the character, but I love the family aspect of it, even though it was, it does deal in, you know, the mob and crime and all that stuff. But uh, it was a family uh, connection and uh, that I really responded to uh, this show. And I, I love, I love the character, love playing. The actors are wonderful. And it's a little bit different in some ways, but um, I did a, a movie called The Substitute uh, years ago with uh, Tom Berenger. And then I played a, a bad principal uh, and uh, the Ghostbusters fans were just, just shocked that I, <laughs> <laughs> but it's what we do. So, um, yeah, I think if something was really so extreme, I don't know if I'd want to do that. I've always felt as a dad that I had to be aware of what I'm putting out there, but, um, you know, it's, uh, it's great to do something different. Yeah, I mean, there, you know, there are definitely aspects of your character that people would be like, Ugh. but um, but in the end, um, you know, you love your wife. <laughs> yeah, yes, right. And you're very good to your wife in in yeah. a world in a world where you know men, you know, usually yeah. aren't. Right. Yeah, I think um, yeah, that relationship. Uh, he loves his wife. You know, the kids are like all kids, not uh, never behave the way you want them, but. But he loves his family and uh, he wants to build this legacy. Um, and he feels probably like uh, a lot of people that that is the only way he's going to achieve the American dream is you can't play it, you know, the way by the books. You got to do whatever is necessary. Um, thank God I've never looked at life that way. But yeah, yeah. But, uh, but some people do. You know, I was at a film festival and I was in a room where Jane Fonda was was in the room uh, yeah. and. She had, I mean, and there were other stars, but she had this sort of aura about her. Um, you do uh, Grace and Frankie with uh, yeah. Jane Fonda and Lily Tom. You know what I'm talking about with that? Oh, yeah. That sort yeah, of no. aura. Yeah. Yeah. She's uh, she's royalty. I mean, I, I remember going to Paramount Studio where we would shoot. And to get there, you have to go past the Peter Fonda Theater on, I think it's on Melrose or something. But um it's Jane Fonda, you know, <laughs> and she, I don't think she tries to be, she just has this bearing about her that, um, and she's so nice and so, you know, down earth, but she still, it's still Jane Fonda, you yes, know, and yes. uh, working with Lily Tomlin, I've been fans of this my entire, it seems like forever, but uh, Lily is so, you know, down to earth and, and just, you know, but Jane, she's nice, but she's still Jane Fonda. Yeah. Yeah. Are you, you know? going to do the, are you going to do the uh, final season of uh, Grace and Frankie? 
Well, originally, uh, I think we were to come back and the characters were to resolve that relationship with me and Lily. Uh, but then the pandemic hit and everything mm-hmm. shut down. And I haven't heard from um, uh, the, the producers. Uh, I'd love to go back. I'd love to work with them again. But, um, you know, everything changed with this pandemic. And, yeah. Yeah. Uh, who knows? You know. So, um, so Jacob's character, um, you wear some heavy duty rings on your fingers. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, now yeah. I want, what I want to know is, you know, when, when you're preparing for a role, um, you know, wardrobe obviously has a lot to do with how you're going right. to look and what you're going to wear. Um, are there times where you've chosen or you've said, I want to do this or I want to do that. So you're, you're making the character your own on your own. Kind of. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, usually for me, because I come from theater and uh, I try to let the wardrobe inform me. But sometimes you're very, very clear and they'll bring you stuff and you kind of go, nope, that I would never he would never wear that. You know, most of the things I do, I would definitely never wear it. But sometimes <laughs> the character and then you have to kind of draw a line and say, nah, you know, but I think the rings say in Grace and Frankie and the way he sort of dresses that's the guy, you know what I mean? So it wasn't like me sort of, I always feel like if I say, I don't want to do this and I try to make it me, that's not really what it's about. You know, it's about how do I find this guy who's a farmer, potato farmer, (laughs) he loves this woman who's, you know, um, I don't know if we'd ever consider, we'd never date in real life, but, but he loves her. And so you got to find that, you know, that, that space. And I think wardrobe uh, does help inform you. Yeah. Well, hopefully we get to see you on uh, the final season of Grace and Frankie. Uh, Ghostbusters Afterlife is in theaters right now. Absolutely love it. Strongly recommend season three of the family business, now streaming on BET plus. Hey, Ernie, this has been a pleasure. Thank you so much for doing this, man. Well, the pleasure is mine. I appreciate you guys taking the time. Great talking to you and just, you know, just the best team. And there is Ernie Hudson, Ghostbusters Afterlife. I, I got to say, I I wondered going in, have they gone back to the Ghoster, Ghostbusters well one too many? You know what? It completely works. The writing, as you told Ernie, is fantastic. The kids are great. Uh, Paul Rudd, uh, the world's sexiest man, according to People Magazine, is great. By the way, how do you feel about that? Paul Rudd, world's sexiest man. I love it. Because he he's he is a very very handsome guy, he's so funny and funny to me is very very sexy. Is that right? Yes, yes. Like Gilbert you know, Gottfried would do it for you. He wouldn't do it for me. But <laughs> but look, I've been I w- I was on the road with a lot of comedians during my my career. Yeah, and there were guys who were so physically unattractive that. Got a lot of women because of their Is that sense right? of humor. Oh, oh wow. yes. Funny scores, huh? Mm-hmm. Uh, so I wanted to tell you about, uh, well, actually, we both saw King Richard, mm-hmm. which is the uh, story Will Smith plays Richard Williams, uh, who is the father of Venus and Serena Williams. I got to tell you, I think Will Smith is, is going to win the Oscar for Best Actor. I thought he was, I thought, best role of his career. Flawless. Completely flawless. He was so, so terrific in that. And I, you know, I went to see that movie. Uh, did you watch it on HBO Max? I did. Yeah. 
so I went to see the movie. Uh, so behind my mask, I found myself smiling through pretty much the whole thing. Like it's just a sweet, inspiring, happy up. We need more movies like that. Smart and upbeat and happy and sentimental. I just, I love that movie. You know, he was a, a, a flawed guy who you couldn't help but root for, you know, because of what was behind his his plan, you know? You know, I mean, the interesting every, so, thing so is... So many steps of the way, it was like, oh, Richard, you know, just give it up. Don't do this. Yeah, fail but, to plan, plan to fail. Um, yeah. The funny thing is Richard Williams had nothing to do with the movie. It was Serena and Venus... It was their story of their dad, which is really, I think, unique um, because you got the, the vision that they had as, as little kids, as kids growing up in tennis. Um, and Will Smith just nailed that Louisiana accent and the demeanor. And you remember? His, yeah, his gait. His I mean, gait. Every, his, phys- his physicality. Yeah, yeah. Was so connected to him. You know? I hope he wins. I hope yeah. he wins because yeah. it's it's totally deserved. Um, all right. Uh, you know who makes the show possible, Sue? Our good buddy, Jacob and Ronnie. And I'll tell you, you know, I was texting with Jacob last week, and he says that the big thing going on right now is Uber and Lyft accidents. And uh, Uber and Lyft have got some of the most high-priced attorneys in the world working for them. And they do not and will try not to pay you what your case deserves. And um, and Jacob Imrani is a guy who's been doing this 25 years. Do you know it's a fact? He's done more Uber and Lyft cases than anybody in Los Angeles. Wow. Anybody. Well, a lot of driving here. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's exactly right. Uh, you got to have Jacob because he is a strong attorney. All the insurance companies fear and respect him. Because no matter how big or small the case, he fights with the same effort. To Jacob, it's about justice, not dollars. He will not let big corporations take advantage of the little guy. Every hurt client deserves justice and deserves to get compensated accurately accurately based on the facts of their case. If you are involved in an Uber accident, Lyft accident, or any kind of accident, You want Jacob. Remember the number, 844-24-JACOB. That's 844-24-JACOB. 844-24-JACOB, or remember the catchy jingle, accident or injury. Call Jacob and Ronnie. Call Call Jacob. Jacob. All right. I'm pretty good. I've I've grown to accept the imperfections. Yeah, it's kind of part of the charm, I think. It is. It is part. and, And Jacob, by the way, loves it. He does. <laughs> Jacob, yeah, Jacob will uh, let me know. Oh boy, you really nailed that jingle. Does he really? Yeah, he does. He does. That's hysterical. Yeah. Um, we want to thank uh, Milos Jelenovic, who is our uh, sound engineer. Uh, he always does a great job for us. If you are listening to the podcast right now, uh, there is a subscribe button. If you're on Apple Podcasts or if you are on Spotify, hit the subscribe button. We appreciate that. It means a lot. Also, leave us a rating and a review. Uh, also, great for us. Um, hey, Sue, great seeing you. Glad you had a great vacation. You look very tan. Thank you very much. And we will see everybody next time on the Culture Pop Podcast. <laughs>